0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's welcome to 2016 for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Great to be back and it'll be a great year this one, our 40th day, with events right throughout the year. But for today I'll be taking over for from Jonathan for a while and while he has a break so it's two hours of Tuesday home time. Today Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network will be updating issues regarding to genetic engineering, environmentalist Lee Tan is in Malaysia investigating a bauxite mine, Jim McElvoy will be assessing the recent past and future for Venezuela, an Australian gold miner suing the El Salvadoran government and reality of Syria as we enter 2016. Colin Bettles is the Canberra Bureau Chief of... Colin Bettles is the Canberra Bureau Chief of Fairfax Agricultural Media and an avid supporter of GM. But on the 6th of January, he went a bit far with a phony story about divisions amongst the Australian Greens, stating in an article that the Australian Greens leader, Richard Di Natale, said his party was considering a policy change on GM crops. And that was followed by a story in The Australian written by Joe Kelly on the same vein. I asked Bob Phelps, the founder of the Gene Ethics Network, what the true story is.
2: The story appears to be that Colin Bettles, who's a very pro-genetic manipulation journalist for the rural media, ran this phony story of division among the Greens over GM policy. He interviewed Dr Di Natale months ago before the Greens met at their national policy convention and at the convention they reviewed and reconfirmed their existing GMO policy which is a very good policy for precautionary regulation of genetic manipulation and the organisms that it produces, particularly for release to the environment. It's up for policy discussion, really, and we will be meeting the Senator, I hope, to really talk about the use of genetic manipulation in research and in medicine and then the release of organisms to the environment, which, as far as we're concerned, is an absolute no-no the senator for his part did go on to say that they've not changed their policy it's still very firmly in place as uh, genetically manipulated organisms have not yet been proven universally safe for the environment agricultural systems or human health that's reassuring the greens have had a gm free policy now for or well, at least 20 years probably 25 since we started working with christine milne when she was first elected to the Tasmanian Parliament all those years ago. They've been very solid and very critical to the debate about genetic engineering and genetic manipulation ever since and have uh, always pursued a good policy on that. They've been very crucial in the States as well as federally. For instance, the South Australian government, which is the ALP, of course, has moratorium on the release of any commercial genetically manipulated crops in South Australia. And there's a similar... Moratorium, Tasmania as well. They're both important and they've been solidly supported by the Greens as well as the Liberals and ALP in those two jurisdictions as well. So there seems to be a consensus that from a marketing point of view at least, uh, staying clean and green and GM free in the food supply is going to bring substantial benefits. And the Agriculture Minister, Leon Bignall, during this most recent discussion about... GM policy was very clear that GM free foods are in strong demand around the world and are going to bring benefits. A measure of that, I suppose, is that GM free canola uh, in Western Australia was fetching $63 a tonne premium over the GM varieties last week, and in Victoria here it's uh, up to $85 a tonne. Really, you'd think from a farmer's perspective that GM free would be the way to be and indeed the vast majority of Australia's 134,000 farmers remain GM free and I think although they're not vocal about it they also agree uh, with that policy because we just have the two crops on offer GM canola and GM cotton. They're both restricted industries but they would have major impacts on the sale of other foodstuffs both here and overseas if they contaminate the food supply.
1: What is the situation with canola because it is in an awful lot of food manufactured produced food how much of it's in Western Australia how much of that gets into the the food that's produced?
2: It's hard to say where it ends up exactly but yes we have the um In fact, we have the GM Free Food Guide, which will be a help to anybody, and they can download that from the web at the GM Free Australia website. The GM canola is used to produce oil, of course, and it's hidden by being put into things like uh, vegetable oils, which are just generic, don't carry a label. Vegetable oils, starches and sugars are not required to be labelled, so they can be in, in those generic vegetable oils in the supermarkets. They can be of course in bread, in baked goods of all descriptions and uh, looking out for canola on the label gives a guide to those foods to avoid. The other thing is that canola trash, the uh, results of the processing of canola can go into animal feed, there would be some in the animal feed supply as well as uh, imported soybean and corn which is used extensively in uh, rearing chickens in Australia. Again, vegetable oil is used extensively in fast food preparation. So asking your fast food store, are you using Formula 40 or canola oil? It's marketed under the brand Formula 40. We'll give you an indication of whether or not GM's in the food supply there. So it's out there. It's about maybe 10% of the crop in Western Australia and rather smaller, maybe less than 5% in Victoria and New South Wales. But the vast majority of canola grown in Australia is still GM free.
1: How did they get their foothold in Western Australia rather than other states?
2: The West Australian crop is much larger. They've promoted it very much more heavily and uh, they've also, from a marketing point of view, pursued a lot of strategies like, you know, buy three bags and get one free. There was a recent story about one of the footy clubs using its vacant land to grow GM canola and use the proceeds of that as a a money-raising effort for the football club. The companies have been very strategic about getting the farming community to adopt GM. Really, it only offers the opportunity to spray Roundup on your crop more often at higher doses in order to get, uh, as they claim, more effective killing of weeds. But uh, a lot of growers who have tried it have found it firstly less profitable because of the lower price that the canola gets, but also you have to pay more for the seed, you have to use Monsanto's own Roundup weed killer, and there is segregation and extra transport costs because hardly any of the silos are accepting genetically manipulated canola in Western Australia and as a result it really it's hard to really see why farmers have been enthusiastic about it but many of them who have grown it once or maybe twice have now said it really didn't work out I'm not interested in any more that's why the companies have had to resort to these um, inducements like the free seed and uh public relations to try and keep their industry afloat. I, I think it's going to go backwards not forwards in the years to come.
1: But the difficulty for the farmers who have gone with GM is that they've, they've no longer got a clean bill of health for their land?
2: Well that is an issue and indeed issues have been raised about how long you'd have to go before you'd be regarded as GM free again maybe five to ten years. There are issues about the value of land because once you've grown GM on your land, then the company can monitor, can come on to your land under the contract, can come on to the land, can uh, monitor whether you're regrowing the GM crop illegally because the contract prohibits the saving as seed. If you want to sell your land to a new land owner, you also have to transfer that responsibility to the new owner of the land, which is pretty onerous, really. You know, you can have the land, but here you've got to have a contract with Monsanto as well, allowing them to come on and uh, check what you're doing as far as GM's concerned. Uh, it's not a very attractive proposition from that point of view.
1: Well, when you're talking about contamination, etc., you brings in the, the issue of Steve Marsh and his court case in Western Australia.
2: Well, yes, of course, the GM proponents were very loud about totally unreasonable that Steve would want to be zero tolerance for GM. And they also, of course, went for the jugular with the organic certifiers saying zero tolerance for GM and organics, ridiculous, couldn't possibly happen, nature's not like that, and of course contamination is inevitable. But uh, now we find that cooperative bulk handlers, which is the largest grain handler in Western Australia, owned by the growers themselves, it's a cooperative, actually has a policy of zero tolerance for any exports of canola to Europe as well. Europe is the biggest market. Over 90% of the crop goes there. The Europeans pay a substantial premium, as I mentioned, this week, up to $63 a tonne to get GM free. And their rules say absolutely zero tolerance for any GM in canola that comes into europe so what we've now found is that of course the people who are criticizing the organic people for having zero tolerance for gm and their food supply are also through their organization the cooperative bulk handlers saying zero tolerance for any exports into europe so last year the agribusiness leaders were attempting and and the west australian department of agriculture in fact tried to knock off zero tolerance in agriculture in the national standard and uh, it's now seen uh, as the complete sham that it was. It's a double standard, it will not be accepted and we're confident now that the organic industry will stand up against the bullies and make sure that the standard continues to say no synthetic chemicals, no GM, no food irradiation, a clean green organic food supply. That's what shoppers expect, and that's what the industry expects to give them.
1: Could you just briefly explain the reasons, the main reasons, why you're against genetic manipulation? Is it, in one sense, the fear of the unknown?
2: Not at all. There's plenty known about the downsides of uh, genetically engineered uh, organisms using the old cut-and-paste techniques, of course, developed in the uh, 1970s and 1980s environmental public health and sovereignty issues of course the patenting of the seed the domination of the global food supply by a handful of now only six mega agrochemical and gm companies is not in the public interest and we see that uh, everybody globally is disadvantaged by the concentration of ownership and control that agrochemicals and genetic manipulation have given to uh, to the agri-food industry.
1: Is it also a fact that one of those companies actually controls some of the others as well, so it's more concentrated?
2: Yes, that does go on behind the scenes because Monsanto actually owns most of the patents on most of of the genes of commercial interest and they license them to the other companies. We've also seen recently that the companies are getting together. So Dow and DuPont have just merged Monsanto and Syngenta are talking about a merger. Uh, So we're going to be down from six companies to uh, four very soon, uh, I'd say, and these are um, mega companies that are making billions or tens of billions of dollars of profit per annum. Really, it's not in anyone's interest for our food supply, our seed supply and so on to fall into the hands of such a, a small coterie of uh, mega corporations the other thing to say is that coming down the pipeline now we have new genetic manipulation technologies which are being called gene editing and really this is where our focus for the future has got to be these so-called gene editing or genome editing technologies are really going to change the game of course already the researchers and the companies are claiming "Oh, accurate safe you know, a new generation of things. It's like the same with the nuclear argument. Oh, the latest nuclear reactors are so great, so safe, so wonderful. And we're getting this with the genome editing technologies as well. And yet, at the moment, there's zero evidence for their safety or efficacy outside laboratories. And so we're saying to the Greens and to the other political parties, hang on a minute, these new technologies need to be very firmly regulated, at least as strongly regulated as uh, the genetic manipulation technologies and the chemicals that are already in the marketplace. But meanwhile, we've got the regulators since 2012 talking to uh, selected groups of so-called experts on these things who are encouraging our regulators to argue that these things shouldn't be uh, regulated. But when you look at the coterie of people who are giving this advice, talk about conflicts of interest. These are people who themselves own patents on genetic manipulation technologies who have spent the whole of their working lives working in laboratories using these technologies and developing the new ones. It's just totally unsatisfactory that our regulators, rather than being a referee in this discussion and debate, are actually taking sides and are siding with the industry, the GM industry and the scientific community, the gene jockeys who want to uh, push these technologies and their products out into the marketplace prematurely. It's entirely unsatisfactory and one of our key focuses this year will be on ensuring that the regulators, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, Food Standards Australia New Zealand, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority and the Therapeutic Goods Administration actually do their job, do it fairly, properly and well and do not disinform our politicians into agreeing to a lack of regulation. Totally unsatisfactory. We've also got the double whammy with these new genome editing technologies that already out on the web, we've got people marketing the tools, kits for sale on the web for gene hacking. Young people with no experience or expertise at all can now buy a set of materials and techniques that they could use in their kitchen, their bathroom or their laundry to do this kind of genetic engineering work. And we're concerned that the regulators have not yet properly and clearly and loudly spoken up saying, hey, this is against the law that it's dangerous. You know, these people are imagining that they're going to be like Steve Jobs and, uh, and others in their garages developing the next wave of new technology. It's, I hope, not going to be so easy because the regulators have got to step in and say, no, you know, without proper training, uh, without the expertise that's needed, nobody should be doing these things and they certainly shouldn't be doing them outside contained... Uh, laboratory facilities which are regulated by universities or other responsible organisations that are overseen by government.
1: Are the regulators in a sense being left behind?
2: Well they're under-resourced. I think they're in the wrong mindset. They're not being proactive, they're being reactive. I think that they're compromised by the revolving door. A lot of people there have had commercial or scientific experience in their background and it's understandable that they will have because that's where they get their expertise from. But, but of course, that means that they're connected into this network of proponents of these new technologies, and I think they're in a compromised position. They have to step back and say, our responsibility is to the public, to the public health and safety, to the public interest, to the national sovereignty of our food supply, generally to responsibility, morality and good ethics, and not be seduced into giving a tick to things that are, uh, at best, nowhere near ready to be marketed as consumable products. This is the message that we're sending out there, not only to the Greens, but also to the other political parties, and say, saying to them, there's got to be some kind of accounting that needs to be, for instance, just as a beginning, an inquiry into what these new technologies are going to mean, and into making sure that our regulators are operating as they should, and providing the precautionary regulation that we need on uh, a new wave of life sciences technologies.
1: As a lobby group, do you have any input into these regulators?
2: Well, of course, there are public processes. Um, When an application comes before them, they advertise, and you can have six weeks or so to um, make a comment. But the fact of the matter is that uh, Food Standards Australia, New Zealand and the OGTR have never rejected an application for a genetically manipulated food or crop product. You'd have to say that the public voice is not listened to. We've got the regulator even. When credible scientists with good evidence do experiments that show that there might be harm to experimental animals, we've got the situation of the Office of Gene Technology Regulator posting on its website rebuttals of this evidence saying bad evidence we're not interested we only assess the chemical analysis information that's provided by the corporations it's not good enough that uh, there isn't a public debate and discussion about the negative evidence on these things as well but the regulators at the moment have clearly taken sides a partisan in what should be an open and public discussion about the health impacts and the safety the environmental impacts of new genetic manipulation technologies and their products and they're not we are going to take them on this year Uh, we're very concerned and angry about the position that they're taking we hope that there will be ears to listen in the parliament to some very measured arguments about this because uh, we are venturing into a whole new ball game and uh, we need our uh, policy makers and our politicians and our regulators to listen up and make damn sure that we exercise precaution, that we are strongly regulated and that there is good evidence before products are marketed, not afterwards. You know, we've been through asbestos, thalidomide, all the other things that you can name that have gone bad despite the intervention of regulators. We don't want this happening again. We need them to be proactive and to operate in the public interest. That's their job. That's what they're there to do. That's what we've given them the power to do. And it's our power. And if they won't do it, then we need to take the power back.
1: Finally, Bob, when you look at the the two major crops, canola and cotton, they're the only two. So you must have had a fair success to stop other crops being introduced into Australia.
2: You might say that genetic manipulation, of course, is a dud, and really there are only five crops out there in the broadacre situation, which comprise 99% of all the GM crops in the world, and that's, um, yes, canola and cotton, but also soybean, corn, and in the USA only, sugar beet. What we see, though, is that uh, North American growers and shoppers are turning dramatically against genetically manipulated crops and foods and of course they're still the biggest producer in the world along with um, Argentina and Brazil so th- the game is changing there and in Australia that just this year in the last couple of weeks we've seen reported that the cotton crop has um, failed 95 percent of it is uh, genetically manipulated cotton it's claimed at the moment that it's a result of spray drift from the spraying of 2,4-D, which is another potent weed killer, from crops up to 10 miles away, drifting onto cotton and killing it. That story will play out. I don't think we know all that we need to know yet about what's caused that, but Monsanto's talking about introducing new varieties of GM cotton because the existing ones have begun to fail. The weed's And the insects are adapting to the fact that uh, GM cotton is out in the fields. So it's a short-term strategy. Who knows? We might actually see the cotton crop being such a disaster that very few growers will grow it. This has been the history of cotton. It's sort of boom and bust. With canola, I think it's already in reverse. Certainly in New South Wales and Victoria, we can see that growers are not that interested in it. Still got a bit of life in it in Western Australia. But the consistent premiums for GM free uh, are so strong that it's hard to see that it's going to continue there either.
1: A contact for Gene Ethics, Bob?
2: Well, give us a bell on our 1300 number, 1300 133 868. Love to hear from any, anybody who wants to follow this up. And of course, we're on Facebook. Look for Gene Ethics and like us on Facebook. We've got about or almost 7,000 likes there, so we've got a very strong following, and we'd love to have your listeners uh, as Facebook friends as well if they'd like to join us. Thanks, Bob. Pleasure to talk. Thank you very much, Jan.
1: And some good advice there from Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Late last year, the Venezuela United Socialist Party, PSUV, suffered a crushing defeat. To the opposition Democratic Roundtable (MUD) in the parliamentary elections, the PSUV won fifty-five cents, while the MUD secured one hundred and nine. This will result in a number of changes after fifteen years of PSUV rule. The swearing-in of the new legislative occurred on the fifth of January, with PSUV legislators walking out amidst mutual verbal mudslinging. It's haste of what's to come. Jim McElroy from Socialist Alliance lived and worked in Venezuela for a year and has been there a number of times in recent years. And I asked Jim first what he judged as the great achievements of the time, firstly of Chavez and later Maduro.
0: Yes, I've made several trips to Venezuela over the last close to 10 years now and coral my partner and myself spent a year living in venezuela in 2006 which was a really extraordinary and life-changing event because when you live in a country like australia a first world country relatively conservative wealthy country to experience an actual popular revolution a process where the the whole system is being challenged it's something so amazing and and unusual I mean in Australia we're used to you know we have rallies anti-war rallies environment all sorts of issues that we fight around and against neoliberalism but it's a strange thing to go to a country like Venezuela where you have a progressive government and where basically the struggle is by the people who support the government against the uh, right-wing forces in society so Yeah, our experience in Venezuela in 2006 was really extraordinary. We lived in a poor area and uh, we sort of got to meet the people and we attended countless rallies. Um, One of the most amazing things you you would be able to do in those days was attend one of President Hugo Chavez's massive uh, rallies, especially in the lead-up to presidential election or another time. You know, there could be a million people, two million people, all with their red t-shirts on with different slogans, different organisations, multitude of different social organisations. The organisations called Social Missions is one of the great achievements of the Bolivarian Revolution. Bolivarian Revolution is the title given by Chavez to the process that was inaugurated in 1998 when he was first elected following the ideas of Simón Bolívar, the great liberator of uh, Latin America who, who fought against the Spanish and liberated Venezuela, Colombia, Bolivia and indirectly other countries. Chávez always said that the, the process that is, that is being undertaken in Venezuela is really a continuation of that liberation process, that independence process against Spain. It's basically fighting for independence against the United States, against imperialism and also against capitalism. So while we were there in 2006, the slogan that Chavez put forward of socialism of the 21st century was first coming into usage. Concretely, that meant the development of, uh, of a new democratic idea of socialism based on popular power, based on the social missions, which are organisations, popular organisations which carry out education, free education, free health care, looking after the poor developing housing all these things have been carried out under the process of the bolivarian revolution and when we were there and on other trips we've made we observed this process in development but you know the problem is and uh, we'll talk about this later with the with the most recent developments that The process can only go so far until you actually remove the power of the oligarchy and the capitalist class. So the oligarchy and the capitalist class in Venezuela, just as it is in Latin America in general, and also right through the third world, still retain that position of power in the economy. So there was sort of like a constant social economic war going on between the right-wing forces and the socialist forces under Hugo Chavez. Now we visited Venezuela several times after that and uh, we saw other developments that were going on and of course the, the death of Chavez was a great tragedy and that's where Maduro came to power and since then it's been a battle which has led to the most recent, uh, recent developments.
1: You weren't surprised or were you surprised at the results of the election late last year?
0: I wasn't surprised, well I possibly was surprised that the election defeat went so badly for the socialists and and that the right wing won a super majority, just to explain they won a two-thirds majority, over two-thirds, which gives you extra power uh, in the National Assembly to to carry out uh, certain measures. I think we were all, just about everyone, including the right wing themselves, were surprised that they were able to win that Supermajority, but this social war has been going on now you know for basically for, for 15 years, but it's intensified in recent times and the uh, perhaps to explain the economic background of it, things like the collapse in the price of oil has been a very, very severe blow to Venezuela because over 90 percent of Venezuela's national income comes from the export of oil. It's the fifth largest oil exporter in the world and it has enormous reserves. When the price of oil collapsed, the national income fell and this reduced the ability of the government to balance its books in terms of the huge spending on social welfare measures, on, on um, you know housing, on education. The thing to remember is that Venezuela has free education to tertiary level, something we don't have in Australia or a wealthy country like that. Free health care, total free health care for the population and um, the development of they've just built the the one millionth house houses and apartments for the poor. And many of those will effectively be for free or for very low for very low rent. So this is a huge expenditure for the benefit of the people. Just to give a couple of statistics, extreme poverty in Venezuela according to official figures, not the venezuelan government but official figures from latin america fell from 16.6 percent of the population in 1998 to 5.4 percent in 2015 that just gives you an idea of the improvement in the general situation of the people but the economic war that was launched by the oligarchy hoarding of goods the incredible inflation the problem of the currency the bolivar being totally devalued against uh, the U.S. dollar has led to a large amount of economic chaos in Venezuela and that's really the background to, I mean, a lot of loss of confidence in the, in the process which I think was the main basis for this, this vote.
1: Surely people must have warned the government of the, the dangers of relying long-term on oil revenue.
0: Yes, ironically, Venezuela has been the Venezuelan government has been very conscious of this and has been attempting to build up sectors such as agriculture, but um, it's very very difficult because they, under the old regime, the old uh, Fourth Republic of the neoliberal presidents in the uh, all right through the 20th century till very late, basically agriculture collapsed, whole agricultural sector in Venezuela collapsed, and the whole and the. The whole economy became to depend on oil, and it was very hard to break out of that. They have been trying to develop new industries, but um, you know at the same time it's very, very difficult. The critical issue is that a large sector of the existing manufacturing and processing sector is still in private hands, and they've had to move gradually to try to take over certain sectors such as the steel industry, the telecommunications they've gradually been moving to put those into public hands, into government hands, and and run them in the interests of the people. But I think, you know, this is where there is a big debate going on, and the debate has been proceeding for some years now about how fast to proceed in the process of radicalising the revolution. It, of course, is very easy for us, maybe people on the left in a country like Australia, to offer advice to Venezuela about what to do. But the problem uh, you face on the ground is that, at a certain point there's going to be a rupture, there's going to be, there has to be some sort of break and that will lead to the possibility of armed conflict and who knows what's going to happen in those circumstances. The right wing are organised, they're getting massive funding. One of the things we need to be aware of is that the United States is massively funding and supporting the right wing in Venezuela as they write through Latin America and Venezuela is essentially their next target. Venezuela is target number 1 in latin america the the us has even made a certain amount of peace with cuba their long standing enemy number 1 in latin america they've they've decided to pursue a different tactic towards uh, cuba but they've actually up the uh, escalated uh, the uh, the attack on venezuela they've declared it a national security threat to the us which is a bizarre thing and um they're doing everything possible, especially through the media wars, the international media war, to uh, undermine Venezuela and, and to basically slander it in the eyes of the people. This is also reflected in the fact that the majority of the media in Venezuela is still privately owned, although there are, public, there, are there is a strong public media sector, but um, the majority is still private owned and it's like the media in Australia, the private media there. It's like having the Murdoch press possibly even more extreme, blasting out every day and trying to undermine um, the process of government. So, yes, you had an economic crisis, you had growing shortages of goods, you had problems of the value of the Bolivar, massive inflation, these things which were largely created by the economic war backed by the United States. This is the circumstances in which this particular election took place.
1: So even though, as you've outlined, the huge benefits for the poor, particularly with things like the missions, many of the poor voted against the socialists.
0: Yes, well, uh, it appears that way, although I I haven't seen a full analysis of the election figures in detail, but I get the impression that one of the problems has been that many pro chavez voters just didn't vote. Right. Because it's not compulsory voting, so it makes a lot of difference whether people come out to vote or not. And um, I think what, what has happened is that there's been a, a large abstention of uh, the poor, and that probably played a, a significant sector uh, factor in, in the result. But it can't be denied that. Obviously, there must have been. Uh, I mean, really, if you look at it, the figures have kind of reversed from recent elections. We've got to remember that there's been something like 17 elections held of various kinds, in Venezuela over the last since 1998 and the Chavistas have won virtually all of them <laughs> except this one so this is a reversal significant reversal of uh, all the recent all the results that have happened up until now in a sense I think it was like six million votes to the right wing and four million votes uh, you know roughly maybe six and a half to four and a half or six to four and a half in this r- most recent result which is a a kind of reversal of recent results or previous results and yeah i mean it is clear that some people have lost confidence it, it appears that some of the members of the population have lost confidence or, so, or they somehow think that they somehow think that the you know if the right wing gets in then uh, the economic problems will be eased in some way or other maybe the u.s will help out or something like that i don't know what is the thinking but obviously you know, this economic war did have a significant impact on the population and caused caused this result to happen.
1: Could you explain how the political system in Venezuela works? Because we've got the National Assembly elections with a two-thirds majority to the right, and yet you have the president electing a new cabinet, new vice president, new economic ministers. How does it work?
0: I suppose the best way to make an analogy is that the system in Venezuela is more similar to the U.S. electoral system than Australia. In Australia, we have the Westminster parliamentary system, so that you know you get you have an election, you get a majority in the parliament, that party then creates the government, and as long as it maintains that majority in the in the parliament, it remains in power. In the uh, Venezuelan system similar to the US you've got an election of a president who has substantial powers and then you have the National Assembly which has certain powers. The significant thing about this recent result which has caused you know a, a standoff now and a, and a kind of a dual power situation is that the right wing has won a two thirds majority and that gives them a kind of a super, what they call a super majority, allows them to do certain things like challenge or appoint judges, it allows them to sort of carry through certain measures and challenge the power of the president. Essentially, the system in Venezuela is a little bit similar to the US in that the president has substantial powers, so we need to explain to people that what has happened in Venezuela is not the collapse of the Chavista government, the Chavista government is basically appointed by the president. And Nicolas Maduro is uh, the president and his election wouldn't normally come up until 2019. But uh, one of the things that the new National Assembly might try to do is to call a revocation referendum. That is a referendum that would allow, if they got a majority, that would allow them to recall the president. That would mean that they would then have another election, an early election for president. They might decide to do that. They may not decide to do that. It's not 100% clear.
1: You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Community Radio Station 3CR. I'm Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Jim McElroy about the recent election results in Venezuela.
0: We have a state of political and economic war in Venezuela at the moment, and one of the things that that wasn't made clear during the election campaign is, is the actual program of the right wing. They didn't uh, say very much about what they were going to do at all. And it's only now that they've uh, won the National Assembly that they are um, now beginning to reveal what their platform is. And uh, there's a very good uh, document that I got off Telesur. I should explain to people, if you do want to follow recent developments in Venezuela, it's very good to look up Telesur, that's T-E-L-E-S-U-R, and they have an English language uh, section and there's a website that you can read and it's in English, so it's very handy. The other major site which gives an enormous amount of information about what's happening in Venezuela is called Venezuela Analysis. Just one word, Venezuela Analysis. If you look up their website, you get an enormous amount of uh, stuff. If we've got time, I'll just probably read this list of things of what the Venezuela's new majority right-wing government is planning to do. Sure. Number one, remove President Nicolas Maduro from office via a recall referendum. I mentioned that. Purge key offices of leftists, including ministries and the Supreme Court. They can also challenge ministries as well as the Supreme Court. Shut down community media and purge public news outlets of critics of the right-wing. Remove or reduce price controls aimed at keeping basic consumer goods affordable. Free right-wing leader, Leopoldo Lopez, who's in prison, convicted of inciting supporters to violence. That happened in the last couple of years after the previous election, when they decided to go into the streets and, uh, and not just demonstrate, but set up barricades and set fire to buildings. And he was actually convicted of, of that. And so the right-wing wanted to free him. They wanted to scrap currency controls aimed at curbing the flight of capital out of Venezuela, and they want to dismantle public electricity and water companies and privatise sections of the economy that have been nationalised. So you can see that's quite a radical neoliberal program. They didn't talk about these things before the election. They just let it fall into their lap, and now they're talking about trying to carry that out.
1: Well, what right or power do they have to do those things?
0: They do have the ability to challenge presidential appointment of ministers and Supreme Court judges, but, the, but it is a dual power type of situation because the president also has the power to veto decisions of the National Assembly, so that's going to be a big struggle. So all those things that, they, that I talked about there, theoretically they do, if they have a two-thirds majority, they have the ability to declare an amnesty for uh, the right-wing leaders that are in they're in jail and and they could carry out a, a number of other measures but there is one other very new factor that i should mention which is that the supreme court has actually declared and the supreme court is is controlled by pro chavista uh, judges who've been appointed over a period of time that the three members of the national assembly elected from the amazonas uh, region, which is largely an Indigenous area, that their election has been suspended because of allegations of fraud, electoral fraud, including vote buying and also manipulation of the electoral process. Further to that, the most recent information, which I've just obtained from Telesur just today, is that there's now surfaced an audio recording of the right-wing governor of Amazonas, province talking about the manipulation of the electoral process and also there's talk there's also a recording of discussion about buying votes that they were they were spending money to actually buy votes which is illegal well politicians buy votes in one way or another but you're not supposed to directly pay people for votes and that that therefore those all the Amazonas reps uh, have been suspended however there's now a, a constitutional crisis looming because the National Assembly, the right-wing National Assembly, decided to swear in those representatives in any case, despite the court ruling. So now there's a standoff. And the court has now come out following that, that action and declared that any, now the National Assembly is illegal and any decisions by the National Assembly are going to be null and void. So we're looking at a, a very serious constitutional crisis coming down. This is going to be the first real clash of the new situation in Venezuela. Yeah, and, and we, we're, we're going to look very closely to see what comes out of this because you've now got a standoff between the court and uh, the National Assembly to see uh, you know what's going to happen. And of course, the president will be having something to say about it as well
1: You listed the things that the, the new government, the the new National Assembly are uh, planning and that hadn't been talked about before on the other hand you have Maduro achieved uh, things under what was called the enabling laws changes mm-hmm. as well so what happens and what what were they and what happens to them in this situation
0: Well there's clearly going to be a clash because there, there, there's contrary decisions being made, I mean the, the, the President has uh, shorn up the process of uh, of the judges so that saying that judges can't be sacked the judges that are there and it also has shorn up the process of the appointment of ministers so in theory from that point of view it's more difficult for the national assembly to sack ministers and replace them moreover one thing that did happen because after the election the election was on the 5th of december i think and so you had virtually a month when the old assembly was in process which had a Chavista majority they passed a number of laws which are going to be interesting to see if the new assembly tries to repeal them one of which of course is, would be very interesting to environmentalists in Australia is they have banned totally the use of GMO in agriculture in Venezuela they also brought in some measures to protect the public broadcasters because one of the measures the right-wing were going to do was to try to privatise and stack out the public broadcasters with uh, right-wing people. They've actually taken measures to remove the public broadcasters from the control of the National Assembly and declare them as independent bodies run by workers' control. So really what we have now, I I believe, and a number of commentators that I've been reading are saying that we're we're kind of in a, a critical standoff point now where the revolution either goes forward or is going to fall back. On the one hand, you have this radical right-wing program from the the right-wing legislators. On the other hand, you have a series of measures which are going to have to be taken by the government if the process is to move forward. And in some of the articles I've been mentioning, they have mentioned the fact that they're going to have to now take really strong steps to control the economy, such as nationalise the banks. And they're going to have to try to get control of uh, the currency new laws to control the currency and um this is going to be you know a real real struggle especially since it you know these measures involve foreign companies and u.s companies and that sort of thing so you know it will escalate the, the measure but the other thing which is really important and really is critical to this whole process is not just the power of the president or other sections to take measures but the role the role of the people what we are going to have to see in Venezuela is a reignition re-igni- of the mass movement, of the popular power movement. Because, in addition to the social missions I've mentioned, that uh, we have popular power organisations called communal councils, and groups of them are gathered into communes, and these are the alternative power structures that have been gradually set up under Chávez and continued under Maduro. But to some extent, you might argue that they haven't, they've been a little bit in the background in recent times and they're going to have to step forward. One thing Maduro did call in December before the new assembly took power was a parliament of the communes and a huge gathering was held in Caracas to bring together the representatives of the communes and the communal councils to try to create a body that would be a counterweight to the National Assembly. So we're actually going to have a system of what was in the Russian Revolution called dual power. We're really going to face a situation where the National Assembly will be counterposed by, on the one hand, the uh, Maduro presidency, and on the other hand, the power of the people. And there's very good chance that we're going to see some massive mobilisations in Venezuela, especially if the right wing do try to carry through some of these measures. I think you'll find there'll be massive mobilisations against it and for more radical changes.
1: Is there any concern of overt as well as covert interference by the US at this time?
0: Well, one interesting thing that I read in the media reported from Venezuela was that the, the Venezuelan armed forces have declared their full support for Maduro, their loyalty to the presidency, which is very significant. As people will be well aware, the history of Latin America is absolutely dotted with military coups usually right-wing military coups carried out with the backing of the united states and the backed by the cia but the situation in venezuela is different or has been different and uh, cross fingers that will remain because chavez uh, came from the army he was a major in the army in 1992 he tried to carry out a left-wing coup with some some of the junior officers and um, that failed at the time, but then he decided to take uh, go, go down the, the electoral route. But nevertheless, it is a critical point in Venezuela that the army has remained loyal to the progressive government. And there was a coup in Venezuela in 2002, April, backed by the United States, and they did temporarily overthrow Chavez, but loyal sections of the army then rose up, along with the masses of the population, and forced them to bring Chávez back to power after only three days. It must be the shortest-lived coup in in world history. And uh, ever since then, some of the right-wingers have been purged from the officer corps, and generally speaking, the the officer corps, majority of the officer corps, have been supporters of Chávez and and Maduro. So, you know, one can only hope that that process continues, that, that the army will remain loyal to the president. Now, one other thing I should point out about the structure of the situation, we should also remember there's another level of government which is still controlled by the Chavista forces, and that is the governors of the states and also the mayors. The majority of governors and mayors are still in the hands of uh, Pro Chavista forces, although the right wing has taken more control of, 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 of more states, but in the last elections, the year before last. But the majority are still in the hands of chavistas so you've you've sort of got um, a sandwich i suppose you've got the president in the hands of the chavistas and the majority of states and and mayors of towns in the hands of chavistas but you've got the national assembly there in the middle in the hands of the right wing so we do have a complex political situation from a structural point of view but the factor that is you know going to be decisive in all this is popular power it's the fact of whether the people will be able to rise up and defend the gains that they've made in this revolution.
1: Well, it looks to be an interesting future ahead, particularly, I believe, at a time of continuing economic downturn around the world.
0: Yes, indeed. It is going to be very uh, important, and I think that we in Australia, and generally people in the Western world, need to take very close notice of what's happening in Venezuela and in the rest of Latin America, And I might mention at this stage that one of the things that myself and my partner, Coral, have been involved in is the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network, which is the main organisation in Australia carrying out solidarity work with Venezuela. And one of the important things that we've been doing over these years, and we've been on a number of these ourselves, is solidarity brigades to Venezuela. We've, over the years, organised about a dozen of these uh, since about 2005, 2006. I want to let your listeners know, that if they're interested in finding out first-hand about Venezuela, there's one plan for November, December this year. We don't have the exact dates yet, but we usually hold them, hold the brigades around that time because it's appropriate from the Australian side that you know it's the end of uh, university term and, and school term and that sort of thing and the beginning of holidays. But on the Venezuelan time, mostly elections are held around that time and we're expecting that there will be new elections for mayors and um, state governors being held towards the end of this year so we're going to try to hold the brigade to coincide with that because that's a period when it's very interesting to be there and you'll see the rallies and it's a very exciting time to be in venezuela and and this time obviously it's going to be even more contested than before but these brigades give you a chance to see firsthand the popular power organizations we visit the education missions we visit the health missions we go and uh, speak to the people in the barrios Uh, we meet leaders of various organizations we've been to places like this the medical school of the americas where venezuela following on the cuban model trains doctors from latin america and from other third world countries all for free and of course we we can't forget that the venezuelan revolution is very very internationalist In that respect, it follows on from the the Cuban idea that uh, the revolution must link up with forces elsewhere in the world. Under Chavez, one of the new developments was the development of ALBA, the Bolivarian alternative for the Americas, which is an international organisation linking up a number of Latin American countries. It has also been expanded into the Caribbean. That organisation is gradually developing progressive economic and political Uh, links right around Latin America yeah the international situation is very important and I might mention also that the process in the whole of Latin America is contested now you've had what was called the red or the pink tide sweeping through Latin America over the last decade or so with uh, progressive governments in countries like Bolivia Ecuador and at at least left of center governments in countries like Brazil and uh, and Argentina but of course most recently we've seen a right-wing president being elected in Argentina and uh, it looks like all hell's going to break loose down there the US is fighting back the US is is trying to take back the territory that's lost over the last 15 years in latin america yeah it's going to be really on in 2016 it's an ex- going to be a really incredibly important and uh, extremely interesting struggle going on in latin america this year and if anyone is interested in finding out about the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network Brigades or anything else relating to solidarity with Venezuela and Latin America, I'll just mention that we have a website. That is the AVSN. It's Venezuela Solidarity. That's just one word, venezuelasolidarity.org. If you look that up, you'll see the details of our previous brigade. If anyone would like to, uh, is interested in finding out more about it then they can uh, contact through that website.
2: Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Centre in St Kildare. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going,
3: Ah! 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 That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard first on 3C... Ah!
1: And before Captain Trash, you're listening to Jim McElroy from Socialist Alliance. And it's a warm welcome to 2016 to Tuesday home time to environmentalist Lee Tan, who is currently in Malaysia. I spoke with her last week prior to her travelling back to Timeleste. Environment and Social Hazards in Malaysia. The target over the past years has been Kwantan, where the Linus Rare Earth Project is now in operation and, as predicted, there are impacts on the environment. This time it's the same area of Malaysia, but the issue is bauxite mining, where metals and possibly radioactive materials are said to be leaking, turning natural green waters to a deep, dark hue, tainted red, triggering fears of heavy metal contamination. First, the background to this mind. where exactly are we talking about?
3: It is a relatively new industry. Apparently in 2014 or earlier, uh, 2015, Indonesia has banned the export of bauxite. And as a result, the buyer, which are majority from China, has turned to Malaysia for the supply. And all of a sudden, there's a boom of bauxite mining. And around the area where the, the Australian liners rest, material plant is situated. There are many, basically they are ores, bauxite ore, which can be dug out directly from the earth. And due to the poor environmental governance here, none of the mine require any environmental impact assessment. Because under Malaysian law, only operations exceeding certain size require an EIA. So basically, the mining has occurred. Just with very crude system where they, they dig out the earth and uh, transport it on truck by the truckloads, totally until um, not in any bags, uh, on roads to the port nearby. And the ore itself is very loose and it's very crumbly with the wind, with the rain. The whole entire area is covered with red dirt, which has very heavy, uh, metal in it. Plus, God knows what is in the, in the ore body because nobody has done any analysis of the ore yet to see what is exactly found in this red dirt. And yesterday, fish were found dead along one of the river like on mars so you know and because of the um recent monsoon rain much of the red dirt has been washed into the south china sea which is an important fishing area for the local people so there's been a huge public outcry particularly from um people living along the coast where they see the south china sea coming red we were we were raised or contaminated with bauxite. People getting sick from the bauxite dust, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the authorities refused to do anything, and only yesterday they announced a kind of a three-month moratorium from the 15th of January
1: who are the miners
3: the miners are actually locals a mixture of people from the royal family well connected you know people who are well connected with the current uh, ruling regime and just small time people um operators what happened is um the miners go around to places to search for soil rich in bauxite, And literally, they just dig out the ground and load them onto trucks and uh, have them ship to China um, and paying the landowner uh, a small amount of money and making a you know, large chunk of profit from this very uncontrolled, very unsustainable and, and environmentally disastrous mining method.
1: How many people live in the area that could be affected? I mean, they're basically digging
3: around residential areas, and just anywhere where they found this box, uh, where they found fairly significant amount of bauxite deposit. They're not huge deposits; they're pockets of um, land that has bauxite minerals in it. Apparently, they're not high in concentration—something like thirty percent. But so it is high enough, and because it's done so cheaply, it makes it profitable uh, for the buyer and also for the operators.
1: It sounds to me as though it'd be pretty dangerous for the people who are digging it out for breathing in the air, the dust.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There have been many traffic accidents from the trucks trying to cut the ore body to the port as quickly as they could. The whole entire area is covered with red dirt, quite thick. I went with a professor from Japan a week ago through the area, and um, we what we saw is about 10 centimeter thick of basically just red dirt sitting around everywhere, particularly in the port. The authorities have been very very slow, incompetent, and to the point of uh, you know non irresponsible when it comes to dealing with this issue because there's been strong belief that they've been bribed particularly by the operators and also by the buyers probably
1: how did you become involved
3: i was told because of my past involvement in the Linus at issue and still monitoring that situation i was told to look into this issue a few months ago and also by the local parliamentarian from the opposition party who's been very proactive in advocating on this
1: issue and the japanese professor yes uh, he he's
3: got a research grant to do uh research on mining in indonesia and malaysia so this is just one of his follow-up visits from uh, his past visit, both to collect samples from the Linus sites because it's funded by the Japanese and uh, also to look at general mining issues in Malaysia.
1: What have you found? We
3: did this together and also I'm beginning to do a, an academic research on uh, the Linus issue just to follow up, to monitor and evaluate the way radioactive waste has been managed or mismanaged here.
1: Are you saying that there's radioactive material in the bauxite?
3: Well, there there is a possibility. Until the sample is analysed, we have no way of telling whether or not it is radioactive. It is possible.
1: And where are the samples going to? Are they going back to Japan, are they?
3: Yes, they've gone to Japan, and um, it it will hopefully be analysed soon.
1: Did you have any difficulty getting those samples? Was there any opposition?
3: Generally, it would be, but um, we have kind of strategically done it at a time which I knew in, surveillance will be minimal. I could not tell you which time they are and all that. Uh, yeah, it has to be done in secrecy because... Especially at the liner side, they guarded quite closely and also in the port area as well. So we basically picked the time which we knew there would be minimal security to actually carry out the sampling.
1: Where to for the Linus project, in your view?
3: Well, the company has been running at a loss because of the very low price for the kind of light rare earth uh, elements which Linus is producing, mm-hmm. however, because of the Japanese support, they were able to continue to operate from a very thin kind of well no profit basically, but yeah the their loan repayment term has been extended. So they're not required to pay a huge amount of loans, which they would otherwise have to, which will bankrupt the company. But um, because of the strategic nature of this kind of um, minerals, uh, where there is a, uh, a kind of a cold war between Japan and China, the Japanese are keen to maintain liners' operations which is a problem for the people in in Malaysia because until today there has not been any permanent waste disposal site for the radioactive waste and we have no idea where the waste has been stored, whether it has has actually left the vicinity of the plant, etc., etc. And there's been no monitoring, no data available to the public for scrutiny.
1: And no monitoring of the workers there?
3: No, not at all. Yeah, it's it's, um, basically the government colluded with the company to keep everything uh, in secrecy, which is a problem when it comes to radioactive uh, materials, especially when Malaysia already had a legacy from a previous rare earth refinery plant, which we also uh, monitored recently in our expedition.
1: And what would you find?
3: We found a site which was an illegal dump, which has very, very high re- reading on the Geiger counter, very high, and uh, all we could do was collect some sample for analysis to find out what's, what's in there. Um, we believe that there's been fairly highly radioactive materials in the area but has not been cleaned up by Mitsubishi, which part on the now-closed, There was a refinery in uh, in a town called Bukit Nara in another state. And that also indicated the failure of the government to manage radioactive waste in Malaysia.
1: It must be concerning for the people of Malaysia who are fighting these issues when the parliament has approved a security law which gives sweeping security powers to a council led led by the Prime Minister, talking about a total dictatorship in Malaysia for people to get any rights at all, particularly environmental and health rights?
3: Absolutely. The law was passed basically to cover up for the people in high office, in government, you know, who recently were reviewed in the media of uh, you know, being involved in a scandal where a huge amount of money were siphoned out from Malaysia's sovereign fund, called 1MDB. Uh, the Prime Minister has been implicated, and this is just one of the many ways in which he used to keep him in power without any checks and balances. It is of huge concern to human rights activists in Malaysia and also to many concerned citizens here, people are just lost as to what to do. They have protested, they've gone to the street, and nothing has changed so far. And more and more, the colonial measures such as that of that law has been passed to dissent and, and also to control citizens. It is actually very worrying here in terms of democracy. It's gone down the tube basically and people's health are put at risk as we can see from both the Linus case studies and currently the bauxite situation.
1: And if you back the system too much there's always the sedition laws waiting for you.
3: Well, precisely and we just have to take the risk until you know, and I mean yeah this kind of law cannot be uh, left unchallenged. I know the Bar Council and uh, many human rights groups have spoken out strongly against it, but you know given the the corrupt system, it is very difficult to change it in the short term. It requires a long term strategy, and uh, there are good people around who are continuing to the work, to advocate for change. Uh, it won't come easy, and it won't come quickly. But it, we just have to try. And with the bauxite issues, people had gotten so angry they started to burn trucks. Today, about six trucks have been burned by people. We don't know who they are, but you know, definitely you know, enough angry people out there to do something damaging like that.
1: The last time we spoke, Lee, it was just after the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. You were moderately encouraged by the conclusions. Is that still the case?
3: Well, it is hard to know. I'm always sceptical, I guess, with anything coming from the United Nations because so much of it is non-binding. And for for the case of Australia, as soon as the Paris Agreement was part, was uh, signed, uh, the Adani Kamaika mine has been approved. So that just shows the double standard of the Australian government. Maybe in other countries in Europe and even you know in China or even in India, there's been some proactive measures taken to reduce carbon dioxide emission and greenhouse gas emission. So in Australia, because of our conservative right-wing government, I have very little hope beyond the actions taken by ordinary citizens and community groups to go low carbon themselves. And in many parts of Asia, like Malaysia, the Paris Agreement is its, it's not even spoken about. Climate change is not even thought about, even though we have seen quite dramatic climatic variation here, from you know extreme heat, drought, and sea flowers, etc., etc.
1: And that was Lee Tan, environmentalist, speaking to us from Malaysia. And her next visit is to Timor Leste, working with the local environmental groups in that country. And hopefully, when she's back we'll be able to hear more about Lee Tan.
4: Belgrave Survival Day is in its ninth year and will be held on January the 26th at Borthwick Park, Benson Street, Belgrave. This year, we're excited to host the legendary and award-winning Kutcher Edwards and the Deans of Soul, as well as the Mula Mula Choir and Hip Hop Dancers. So come along from 12 noon and celebrate Survival Day. For more information, email survivalday
1: at gmail.com. Goldgrave Survival Day is a free supporter. There are many David and Goliath stories and today details of one which has activated people in many countries. I'm talking about Minor Pacific Rim, a wholly owned subsidiary of the Australian-based Oceana Gold Which is suing the Salvadoran government for over 300 million US in a World Bank investor state tribunal for not granting permission to the company's El Dorado gold mine after the project failed to meet national regulatory requirements. The ruling is secretive and expected imminently. Kevin Bracken, former Victorian Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia, has been involved in the campaign to expose Oceania Gold's treatment of one of the poorest countries in the world.
4: In 2004, I believe they put out a um, permit for exploration licence and they were granted the exploration licence. They were carrying out work at the the, um, site. Water wells were drying up, cattle were dying and people started protesting about it. There was a, started to be a, a bit of a groundswell, you know, grassroots organisation against the El Dorado Mining Project by Pacific Rim. They called it, we're going to do green mining. Instead of going through the proper process and applying for environmental permits and doing things the proper way, they thought they'd just splash a bit of money around the place. they will give them money to political donations, you know, some of the churches there, funding schools and buying some media advertising through the green mining campaign, trying to buy off, off the community. And it, it did cause a bit of conjecture. Some people... There was a few people there who want the mine to go ahead, but the vast majority of people are, are against it. By about 2008, there was starting being death threats put around the place. What started up was called the National Roundtable Against Metallic Mining. The majority of people on the ground supported you know, it. know, was ordering the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, was calling for a complete ban on metalliferous mining. Three times a bishops' conference has called for a South Korean government to prohibit mining. In 2009, Marcelo Rivera, who was one of the environmentalist leaders, he was uh, went missing, and his body was found um, two weeks later in San Isidro. He had been tortured; he was stabbed in the balls. He had his fingernails ripped out. He had a gag, a rope tied right in his mouth, and he was found down the bottom of a well. So since then, Romero Rivera Gomez was on the 20th of December, 2009. He was shot. 26th of December, Boxing Day, daughter Soto, who was a mother of an environmentalist, was murdered. She was a mother of six. She was eight months pregnant at the time. The bullet also went through her her two-year-old son, who she was nursing at the time. In 2011, Juan Ayala, a volunteer of Cabanas Environmental Committee, was also murdered too. So this is going on on the ground, and my involvement came about was in 2013, when I was asked to go to a um. International Fact-Finding Committee to El Salvador. We'd had an um, association with El Salvador before. We'd been involved with the Teamsters in trying to organise the um, truck drivers out of the uh, Maersk Terminal in El Salvador. There was a organiser from the, t- the uh, Teamsters who went over there and he was shot about ten days after he'd been there. It's a violent place and as, uh, traditionally it's been reasonably violent too. And it's like most South American countries, there's probably 5% of the population owns most of the wealth and the rest of the people are dirt poor there.
1: Tell us about your trip there. Just what part of El Salvador did you go to?
4: First off, the University of Central America in in, um, San Salvador. And we started, we had a um, conference here. And from there we went out, we went to Cabanos. We stayed at um, Ardez, which is the um, Association for the Development of El Salvador, and from there, we, we, the group split up into two groups. One went to um, the mine in um, Cerro Blanco Mine, which is just over the border from El Salvador in Nicaragua. I went to the um, mine in Cabanas.
1: What was it like? What's the area like?
4: Well, there had been a mine operating there from 1984. There'd been about 50 tonnes of gold extracted, and it's, a very, it's all 24-garret gold. But there's nothing to show for the, all the wealth that was taken out of place. There was no public buildings, no bitumen roads. All that was left there was a poison water supply system. We went, we went up to the mine. What they were proposing, it's a massive mountain, which has been mined. What they want to do is do an open cut, so it's just wipe the whole mountain out, use cyanide to do the gold extraction. In 2009, the El Salvadoran government put a ban on all and refused to uh, put any more mining permits out. So that's held, held up. As a matter of fact, what's happened there lately, there's been going to local uh, municipal councils and they've been vo- taking votes one by one. There's already four municipal councils voted against it and the vote's been you know, well over 75% that want a complete ban on mining in those municipalities. When they didn't get the um, support, they tried to use the company, Pacific Rim, tried to use the uh, CAFTA, Central American Free Trade Agreement, to sue it through the ISDS legislation. They found out they couldn't do that, but what they did, they found out a piece of investment legislation that was already put in by a white-wing government, by the Iranian government in in El Salvador, and they um, used that to take it to a tribunal at the World Bank, and that's what's happening now. We're having protests here in Melbourne. We've had them for over two years, and and our protests are about getting um, Oceana Gold, which has since bought out Pacific Rim in October 2013. Oceana Gold, a Melbourne-based company, bought out Pacific Rim and they took the case up to the World Bank against the government of El Salvador. And people need to be aware that these legislations in the, is in the last three, three, three trade agreements actually four. Three trade agreements have been signed and the fourth one, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, ISDS clauses, which allow a corporation to sue a government if they make a change in the laws, which they believe is invested in stop their investments, you know, or harm their investments. They don't care whether it's um, in the best interest of the people, you know, supporting the health of the people or the welfare of the country. If that corporation's profits have been affected by the, by the change in legislation, they'll legislate against that and they'll make a decision. So the case was heard in the um, World Bank Tribunal by you know, a tribunal of three trade lawyers in uh, September 2014. And are expecting a decision to be handed down in March, and as yet there's still no decision being handed down. It's, I think it's the fifth longest case it has been that's still going on, over for six and a half years. El Salvador is a very poor country. It's cost the government about twelve million dollars, and this is a, what people don't factor in. When we've spoke to Andrew Robb about what about the ISDS clauses in the China, Japan, and Korea Free Trade Agreement and the upcoming TPP, he said it's nothing to worry about. It's been in there for years. But look at the um, the uh, Philip Morris case—that never went to to hearing—cost the government fifty million dollars. If an Australian corporation can use this legislation to sue one of the poorest countries on earth, do you think that China or Japan or Korea are going to an eye, or the USA are going about to bat an island about suing on us, one of the richest countries on earth? It's a real worry, and it's a, it's about how corporations are, are now running the sh- the show. Corporations, boy, having these free trade agreements come in, are now dictating to governments what they're going to do part of the reason when we went over there the Cerro Blanco mine, six people had been shot who had been protesting about that just before I'd got there, it was about April 2013 so it was widespread you know, outrage about it, the church got right behind it and local communities but the government of Nicaragua hasn't used that legislation because they're afraid that um, the Cerro Blanco mine or the company that's involved in that, will use that legislation to sue Nicaragua in the the court too. This legislation, the ISDS legislation, has a freezing effect on governments legislating in the best interest of their people.
1: And just looking at the environmental impacts, it's an oxymoron to say that you can have green gold mining. It just doesn't happen. It can't happen.
4: Yeah, well, if you have a look at the terrain, yeah, it's a mer- very mountainous country. It's and what
1: they use to get to extract the gold?
4: That's right. Yeah, cyanide. I mean, is, on this mine, there's two containers of cyanide. The only thing they've got to protect it is a, is a brick wall, three bricks high. That water washes into the water supply system. and I think it goes into the Limpo River, and it's, that supplies two thirds of the water to El Salvador. El Salvador is one of the poorest countries, the most densely populated countries in Central America, and even probably on earth. It's 369 people per square meter. And coming
1: you know, out of little, a dreadful civil war in 70s, 70s, 80s, 80s.
4: And 90s, yep, yeah, where paramilitary groups were, you know, murdering people, and the army was murdering people. I mean, we went over there, we had a, we uh, toured a village. The whole township had been rounded up, put into different buildings. Men in one building, women in another, children in the other, and the whole lot were massacred. And so, we were in a very violent country, and we did take in a lot of um, refugees from El Salvador when this government had a bit more of a heart, but um, no, they've stopped doing that now. The FLNM has been in government now. Um, I think they no longer have the majority, but the president is still FLNM. Lots of money have been put in to um, get a right, and get the arena government re-elected back there too. There was a tour just recently by uh, Bill Clinton, uh, the Mexican telecom magnate, Carlos Slim, who owns the two biggest communication suppliers, Canadian businessman Frank Guistara, and they've been to support the local project, the um, Clinton-Guistara Enterprise Partnership, that's working with an El Salvador businessman, Carlos Colegios, is the owner of the Super Select grocery store who wants to be the uh, president in the 2019 elections. And there's vast amounts of money going in there. And whatever the motives, the Clinton Slim Guistra Colegios Galines in El Salvador offers a sobering glimpse into the multi-billion dollars ties that exist between extractive industries, corporate philanthropy and uh, global politics in which community interests are sacrificed for the financial and political gain of an elite few. And that's taken from the website of um, Stop ES Mining, which anyone can go onto, and it's, a, it's um, got a lot of information about there too, and, and things that you can do to become involved in this.
1: And of course, it's the grassroots people who, who, who are impacted most. Can you talk about some of the people you met and what their lives are like now?
4: Yeah, well, Vitalina Morales. She was the um, president of Ades, the Association for the Development of El Salvador, and people want real development in their country, but they don't want it. It's going to uh, development. It's going to Give all the wealth of the country over to a few people and leave the vast majority with poison water supply system. I think there's probably two thirds of um, El Salvador that live off the land. You know, if you've got two or three dollars, you can buy a barrel of water, but if you haven't got that money, you've got to use that water that's in that creek to wash your clothes, do the cooking, drinking, and everything else too. A lot of uh, diseases in El Salvador, kidney disease and lung diseases, which are rare in other parts of the world, which are common over there, just through that. And it's not only the cyanide that's in there. Because it's a volcanic area, a lot of those rocks are sulfuric. When they come in contact with the water, they become you know, sulfuric acid. And I've walked through the, cream, uh, the streams up there, and the next day my shoes fell apart. You know, So this is the water that people need to, to drink and cook their food in and wash their clothes. But quite rightly, the government of El Salvador has stopped the um, issue of any mining permits, but there's lots of money being put in to start those up again too.
1: Is it community-owned land?
4: A lot of it is, yes. What In the 1930s, traditionally about 14 families owned most of the wealth in El Salvador and they wanted to take over a lot of indigenous land and they started slaughtering the indigenous people. A lot of people moved into the city, they stopped wearing the traditional clothes and you know, in El Salvador now, people don't wear the traditional clothes whereas if you go to um, Guatemala, they're still wearing the traditional colours the native people have worn there too. It, yeah, a lot of the land is still... Belongs to to um, native families, but a lot of it is to owned by the wealthy families.
1: And the wealthy families are the ones that are giving over the land for the mine. Is that the case? For the
4: mine, that's right. Yep. yep.
1: And of course, we have to look at what's happened in the Philippines with oceanic gold. I'm sure you know the story of that.
4: Yep. There's protests there about the mining opening up, and then I think in um, December 2012 there was two people murdered before it opened up, and a lot of it was widespread. Yeah, you know, dissatisfaction and also you know poison the water supply all, all downstream of the uh, mine as well so i believe they're also after uh, trying to open up a mine in um, the north island of new zealand too we've got to make contact there's a, some a maori land over there so one of the fellows who lives in that area came to melbourne earlier on for a conference
1: you have a demonstration once a month do you have any contact at all with the the people who work in those offices in Oceania Gold in the city?
4: We haven't. When um, Vitalina Morales, who came out from El Salvador in um, October 2013, and well, I said, well, after the protest we'll have here, we'll go up and see the office, he said, I don't want to speak to them. We don't want the mine here. We don't want it here. We don't want to enter in negotiations with them too. We want them to go and we want them to stop suing our country, which is $315 million US million which has gone up a lot more than what, what it's worth in Australia now. It's probably about 5% of the uh, GDP of El Salvador.
1: And what happens when you have your demos there once a month?
4: We go to the demonstration. The police usually come. We tell them what's going on, and they say it's fine. I think the company calls (laughs) calls them every week. Every time we're there, we're carrying out what we're allowed to do in this country. We're allowed to protest. And we've got the confidence that we're not going to be murdered, and we are protesting about injustices, which is a lot different than what happens in people in other parts of the world too. So because this country... This company is based in Melbourne. I think it's a, it's a um, responsibility on the people who are concerned about justice issues to go out and um, make this company's heard. And what we do, we tell them exactly what's going on in the street. We have a loud hailer in Collins Street. The address is three fifty seven Collins Street, so it's in the heart of the business district. And we say what's going on. Yeah, you know, the people have been murdered here. What they're, they're suing one of the poorest countries on earth, the most densely populated and water starved countries on earth because they've enacted legislation to look after the welfare of their people. Because of that, this corporation is allowed to sue the government and we let them know that also that legislation now can be used against the Australian government because we've signed over like three and nearly in the TPP soon that allows corporate interest to override, the, to stop the government from legislating in the best interests of the people who live there.
1: The next demo is at the end of this month. What time of day is it?
4: 12 o'clock out the front of the offices of Oceana Gold, which is three fifty seven Collins Street, Melbourne.
1: And that's the twenty ninth of January.
4: The twenty ninth. That's in between Elizabeth and, and um Queen Street. People are concerned about justice being served, then please come along.
1: And don't forget that you could be next in line.
4: That's right. And unless we use these you know we use our rights here, they'll they'll be taken away from us here as well. And they, I believe they'd do the same thing here as what they're doing over there. We'll have a look at what they're doing to Aboriginal lands over there. Worrying part is that you know the bottom's falling out of all the mining industry and the the uh, oil and gas industry. Gold is one of the few few commodities which is is going up in price which in times of uncertainty. Is always the case. If anyone wants to go and find out about this Stop ES mining um, on the internet, if you Google that, you'll uh, see a lot of resources there too, and how uh, you can be involved. There's already been a petition put around by some of us, and I think it was over two hundred thousand people, which we handed to the took up to the officers, yeah, their story is, oh, we're looking after the mum and dad's investors. Well, the investors in this company are the big banks.
1: And that was Kevin Bracken, former Secretary of the Victorian branch of the MUA. And if you want to take up the responsibility, the demo is on Friday, the 29th of January, 12pm, at 257 Collins Street in the city, the offices of Oceania Gold between Elizabeth Street and Queen Street. You're listening to 3CR, and I'll be going on till six o'clock. I'm filling in for Jonathan. It's been hard to avoid photos in both the mass media and social media, purportedly showing images of skeleton children and others resulting from the Syrian government's besieging of the rebel held town of Medea. But as in the case in recent times regarding Syria, and the demonisation of the government, many are fake images. I asked Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer at Sydney University, what is the truth and what is fiction?
5: The real story is that there are real problems of people in towns that are caught between the fighting getting access to food. That's a real issue across quite a number of towns, not just Madaya. In the case of Mediah, the, the huge focus was on Mediah because this is where the siege is on the part of the syrian army syrian army has a group of al-qaeda types in there about six hundred of them in the in the town and effectively they are using the population of the town as hostages and so you know there's a stalemate more or less in that town there's a couple of towns in the north far and another one in idlib near near the turkish up near the turkish border which is the reverse they're under siege by the al-qaeda groups so There are people in a number of situations in Syria which are caught in this particular situation. Now, in the case of Madaya, there was a huge amount of publicity about that and a lot of fabricated photos. It's um, important to notice that in the enthusiasm to attack the Syrian government again or accuse the Syrian government again, they've used photos photos from all over the place. There was photos from Europe several years ago, photos from other parts of Syria a year or two years ago. The BBC used a rally of people in Yarmouk camp, the Palestinian camp, about uh, two years ago. So there's a a huge amount of disinformation in those photos. I mean, it's been a general feature of the Syrian conflict that the use of recycled photos is just endemic, just endemic. But having said that, there is a real problem with people getting access to food. Now, in the case of Madaya, which was focused on, because in this case it's true that the Syrian army is the force that's basically got the the city surrounded and doesn't want people to move out except under under control because they don't want the the Islamists to escape or the the terrorist armed groups to escape. In that case, there was a delivery of food, of a number of trucks of food in October, but most of it was seized by the armed groups in the town for themselves and then to sell. What you saw almost at the same time as the the campaigns, the, the media campaigns around Madaya was some interviews getting out saying that residents there were being charged exorbitant prices to buy this food. So that was the situation there. Um, Now about a week ago, trucks got through again but there's no guarantee that those armed groups, there's meant to be about 600 armed men, about um, 60% of them are from a group called Arar al-Sham, about 30% from Jabhat al-Nusra, which is mainly foreigners and about 10% the old Free Syrian Army. They're a combination of groups there and they have effective control at the centre of the town still. The army can't move in because there's such a lot of civilians there.
1: What about some of the other towns that are also blockaded?
5: Yeah, the ones in, in Idlib in the north, Fawa and the other one, Kafraya, are largely populated by minorities and they've been under siege by those same groups, basically Jabhat al-Nusra or al Sham. Turks and the Saudis have, or the Turkish government and the Saudis have armed them and supported them to, to invade Syria back in about April, about nine months ago, April last year. They're still occupying large parts of Idlib. And these two little towns, Far and Kafraya, are minorities with Shia populations, for example, in them that are basically under siege by those groups. And so there's been some sort of horse trading between the government and those armed groups about on the one hand getting people out, on the other hand getting supplies in. You might remember there was a type of a agreement with um, the groups in Homs, the last of the armed groups in Homs were trucked out of Homs up to that area in northern Idlib in exchange for some other people who were being held, and another town called Zabadani which is near Madaya uh, towards the Lebanese side of, of Syria. There have been these sorts of negotiations between the groups and exchange of people, releasing people that were caught in these situations. But the problem of the armed groups getting those supplies immediately and um, selling them or keeping them for themselves is one of the major one of the major problems. And that problem wasn't recognised. The Western media was trying to say that the Syrian army was deliberately starving the civilians there. That was, that was just silly. In the case of Madaya, they were effectively human shields held by the armed groups and the armed groups that withheld a lot of the supplies that have been sent in.
1: Can you give us an idea of what the situation would be with the climate there with midwinter? What are the people facing? Yes,
5: yeah, it's the coldest time of the year right now. I would say it's not like Russia but it's, um, it's below zero often and there's snow in a lot of areas so people do obviously need warm clothes and heating that's a problem. One of the great ironies of this thing about the Western media running a big campaign accusing the Syrian government of doing cruel things to their own people is all of the Europeans and the North Americans have got an economic sanction campaign on Syria at the moment. And that's creating shortages, high prices for essential things, problems with heating fuel in winter. So the lack of power for air conditioning in summer and heating in winter because Syria's a bit of a place of extremes. You know, it's 40 degrees in summer and it's below zero in winter. That's causing a lot of stress to people, the, the general shortages. So this sanctions campaign combined with Western governments backing the armed groups is um, having a severe impact on, on Syrian people and it's, it's very hypocritical for them to then try and claim, shed some crocodile tears for people who are suffering as a result of this. The whole country is effectively being held hostage to these armed groups and the, and the sanctions
1: campaign. You're talking about the Western groups supporting the armed terrorists, but you've also got Saudi Arabia and Turkey, and it seems that those two countries might be unravelling.
5: Well, they've got their own problems. But remember, Saudi Arabia and Turkey are effectively the proxies for the U.S. There, The Saudis really only exist politically because they have support from the U.S. The U.S. finds them a very useful partner in the region. They're the least legitimate regime on Earth, probably. Uh, No other country on Earth has has its nation called after a family. I think George Galloway said even North Korea is not called... Kim Jong Ilia. You know, it's Saudi Arabia is just a family, basically, but there's actually 25 million people in Saudi Arabia, and they've just been executing a number of them. When we talk about the role of the Saudis and the government of Erdogan in Turkey, Turkey's a member of, a member of NATO, remember, they're working hand in glove with the US. There's not really an independent agency there on their part. Of course, they do have particular interests, but um, they're using U.S. weapons, for example. All of the armed groups are predominantly armed with U.S. weapons, including anti-tank weapons, some heavy weapons. You know, So the Saudis have some, some of their own problems in, in the sense that they've sent in a repressive force to, to crush um, the revolt in, in Yemen against the government that they'd supported. And uh, so they, they engaged in a war on, on Yemen, which is going through its own process of change at the moment. They seem to be losing out fairly badly there. They've been running a campaign of pumping a lot of oil to drive the prices down of oil to try and weaken countries like Russia and Venezuela, but that's also running down their own reserves and their own financial capacity. They've now got very big deficits, which is unusual for them. Usually they've had large amounts of surplus money. And the Saudis have been financing the major, along with Qatar, financing the major part of this this war against Syria. So Turkey... The other situation there, of course, is the largest Kurd group in the whole region is in Turkey and they have the worst relations with the Turkish government. There's another war going on effectively in, in Turkey with the Turkish government against the, the Turkish Kurds. So it's true they have their own problems, but we have to always bear in mind that they work, do work hand in glove with Washington.
1: What impact will Iranian oil coming onto the market have?
5: The Iranian oil has been on the market for a long time, it hasn't really gone off the market because they've been selling to other other parties, including in non-US dollar terms. That's important. You notice that uh, a number of countries, more and more countries, are starting to sell oil in other currencies. But there is an impact from, if you're referring to the, the, the US partial lifting of sanctions, because it seems like they're adding new ones while they're lifting others, that's been important for For example, the European-Iranian relations and a lot of Asian-Iranian relations, in particular Chinese and Indian commercial relations. So there's a big wave of investment now going on in Iran, even though the US is going to keep dragging its heels and imposing new unilateral sanctions, basically. The impact of that agreement, which seems to be the fruit of it, should be happening about now, is important in economic and commercial terms for Iran and, and for the region.
1: Do you believe that the mass executions in Saudi Arabia recently were a way of trying to shore up support at home?
5: I think so. I think that's right. I think that uh, this is a very brutal regime. The US inherited the Saudi family as their agent, one of their key agents in the region from the British. And if you read back what Winston Churchill said about the Saudi family, because the British were deeply... You know, interested in their role back after the First World War. Churchill said that the Saudis, on the one hand, and their Wahhabi religious acolytes um, horrified him with what they did to their women and chopping off people's hands and all those sorts of things that they do. They horrified him on the one hand, but on the, on the other hand, he said he'd always be grateful for the, for the undying loyalty that they they gave to Britain. So the saudis know on what side their bread is buttered you know they had this loyal relationship with the british while the british were dominating the middle east and then when the british handed over to the new big power in the 1950s when churchill literally you know and personally handed over the saudi king to eisenhower the president then in the u.s it was with that in mind that it wasn't because they loved their culture even though you know churchill was a brutal man himself too but wasn't it that they like their culture, that the role that they played, the loyalty to the British and then to the U.S. was, was critically important. And so the, the Saudis have been at the root of the sectarianism and the use of sectarianism as a tool to divide the region because the U.S., like the British before them, like the Romans before them, know that dividing rule was a, was a winning tactic for any big power trying to dominate a region.
1: Another issue which was very prominent a while ago was the the use of chemical weapons, and everyone screamed loud and clear that it was the the Syrian government who were using the chemical weapons. We've now had it clarified from the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons that, in fact, it was the, the rebels who were using the chemical weapons.
4: Well,
5: in fact, the UN officials had said that several times before, but, of course, it was buried in the news reports, and the news reports kept running with what? washington was saying if washington said it our media didn't seem to have the guts to go out and look for the information it was out there in public they were using chemical weapons in 2012 in 2013 early 2013 it was the syrian government that reported to the un that chemical weapons had been used against its soldiers in al-Assal, and the chemical weapons inspectors were in damascus in august 2013 precisely to investigate that incident in al-Assal. while they were there Another incident was stunt, really, if you ask me, was organised in Damascus, and that's the one that got all the attention with the pictures of the children and so on, the East ghouta chemical weapons incident. So all through this time, from as early as 2012, there'd been very public reports of those al-Qaeda groups using chemical weapons, and uh, it was just that the Western governments were so accustomed to blaming everything on the Syrian government that the media kept that facade running, basically. But that information has been public for a very long time. There was a report at the end of 2013 by the UN2, that same group of the UN that you mentioned, the OPCW, that they had, while they didn't attribute blame, they found that there'd been five chemical weapons incidents in 2013, and most of them were against soldiers and civilians. So without saying who did it, they were saying most of them were against soldiers as well as civilians. So you can see it's coming from a group that's against soldiers, not the the soldiers themselves.
1: And why have those attacks stopped?
5: They haven't stopped. I mean, they've been reported in Iraq as well. ISIS has been included. The ones in Syria in 2013 were not ISIS. They were Jabhat al-Nusra, Arar al-Sham, those same groups, by the way, that are in Madaya. They were the ones implicated in 2013. But ISIS has been implicated since then in both northeastern Syria and and northern Iraq in, use, in the use of chemical weapons.
1: The program is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. I'm Jane Bartlett and I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson from Sydney University. Is it known who's supplying the weapons to them?
5: It was reported in 2000, late 2013 that the Saudis were supplying them to the group in uh, Duma in the in East scooter but more recently there's been a scandal in turkey because the turkish opposition mp has said that they've got evidence that the the turkish government was involved in supplying them too but on the other hand there have been arrests also of Jabhat al nusra members over the last two and a half years in turkey for possession of chemical weapons so there's quite a lot of quite a lot of reports stretching over almost three years about um, the al-qaeda groups uh, getting their hands on having stockpiles of or those stockpiles being confiscated and actually using those weapons. They used them in the south of Syria, too, against soldiers. There's been a lot of incidents. But their habit has often been to then, because they have the Western media effectively under control because the Western media is so anti-Syria, they will always report it as, after they've been used, that the government used it, standard tactic they've used of uh, carrying out a massacre and then blaming it on the government or, or using a, uh, something like a chemical weapon and then blaming it on the on the Syrian army.
1: As we move into 2016, what is the the role of Russia in Syria at the moment?
5: Well, the role of Russia has been critical in, in military terms because the air power and the coordination, the intelligence coordination with Syria, and let's remember that the troops on the ground in Syria now are the Syrian army, the, defense, the, the national defence forces, uh, at least a dozen large domestic militias from different areas because the communities in different parts of syria have formed their own groups to give priority to protection of their own communities and hezbollah from lebanon and voluntary militia from iraq um, a number of them from shia communities of course but not organized as as sectarian communities they're doing the on the ground work while the russians are carrying most of the burden of the air power the syrian air force is is involved with the Russians too so they've made a lot of progress in between all of these uh, new scandals like the like the Mediah scandal there's been a lot of progress since September the 30th I read a couple of days ago that they said there was something like 230 240 new populated centers that means towns or cities that have been liberated since uh, that means in the last um, three months in a little bit over three months very large areas of Syria have been liberated. Most of Latakia, up the north of Latakia to the Turkish border, has now liberated. One of the groups, Jundal sham led by some Chechens, has recently said they can't go on anymore. They're effectively, they can't combat the Syrian army there. So the combination of Russia, the role of Russia has been important. One thing I always draw attention to as important too is that it's quite significant that Iraq has joined in this group. So you've effectively got a clean sweep of the neighbours there, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and the, the most powerful military force in Lebanon, Hezbollah, working together with the Russians with their coordination centre in Baghdad, the intelligence centre against the terrorist groups in Baghdad, even while Baghdad is still embedded with, to a fair degree, the US, and with, including with arms contracts and all sorts of things. But the fact that, Iraq is now coordinating with Syria, Iran and Russia is highly significant and it obviously has implications for the future of the US presence in the whole region.
1: What actually is in it for Russia to support Syria?
5: There's two reasons really. One is that the one that they stress, the one that President Putin stresses is the domestic reason. He certainly has stronger support from the Russian people on that. The Russian people are sort of only... Mildly in favour of him supporting other countries you know for strategic reasons, but if it 's in defense of russia there 's very strong support for it, and they say it 's in defense of Russia because there are somewhere between five thousand and ten thousand Russian citizens fighting in Syria, a lot of them Chechens, but other parts of Russia, like Dagestan and parts of the, other parts of the Caucasus, for example, that they say is a problem back at home. These people better to fight them in Syria than to fight them back at home, and as you know. Russia's had its own experience of terrorism, some serious terrorism, very large massacres in the past, and and Putin was the one that effectively put the lid on that and got a political settlement in, in Chechnya, for example. So that's the domestic explanation, and the strategic explanation is really that they have a strong interest in independent countries, having good relations with independent countries in the region, and not being squeezed out by the US establishing puppets all the way through the Middle East, which of course is strategically important for a number of reasons not least it's oil and gas it's a counter strategy it's a counterweight strategy in many respects to the U.S. which has been trying to lock up the whole region with a series of regime regime change operations some people call it the long war since the invasion of Afghanistan then Iraq then the toppling of the Libyan government and and now Syria in that sense Russia has strategic objectives but it also has these, these domestic
1: objectives is it pipelines? Is that important too, the resources?
5: Yeah, the pipelines are an important issue. I don't think they're as critically important as some people say, or they're not, they don't determine the whole thing. There is a history to these that the gas pipelines in particular, there are competing gas pipelines, for example, from Iran and from Qatar, for example, and then the Russian relationship with Europe is an important one in terms of gas, too. So those things are important and Syria is at a crossroads with a with a role in all of that. Uh, and Syria has oil and gas, but it's not as big as the others, although they're finding some new gas in in the Levant on the coastal areas and in the Golan Heights, which Israel occupies. So there, there are important implications of those sensitive areas which have um, resources like that. But I really think it's better to step back and look at the whole regional strategy because the only explanation, and it's a, it's a traditional explanation of the role of an empire, for all of these wars in the Middle East for the last 15 years, there is a big regional strategy going on, and it, it's not really a secret. The Bush administration called it the New Middle East. They wanted a New Middle East, and Israel was enthusiastic about that, and that helped explain Israel going into Lebanon back in 2006. And of course, they didn't achieve their objectives there, but there is this broader aim to try and reshape the Middle East and control the entire region that helps explain the ongoing hostility to Iran too, really and the ambiguity of the US about the new relationship with Iran
1: Was Iran sort of the prize at the end because once they've knocked off all the others then they just they move into the big one which is Iran
5: I think that's right but of course Iran is the biggest most powerful nation in the Middle East tremendous resources you know large population tremendous capacity in many respects it's been strengthened by the wars that they were forced into, the, remember the, the US-backed uh, Saddam Hussein against Iran for, for many years, and the sanctions have made them rather more self-sufficient in areas like military and industrial capacity and so on, so Iran is the end of the chain there. But of course, the other things that happen is, I mean, Palestine will be completely lost. If Syria fell, Palestine will be lost because Syria's that important link between Iran and, and Hezbollah. So. Breaking that axis, that has been Israel's priority, for example, the axis between Hezbollah, Syria and Iran. And the reason that they say that Iran supports terrorism is because they support the Palestinian resistance, basically. So Iran is the, the big player, but the US had only ever wanted to take on one at a time. And that's why, while this Syrian war has been going on, and it's almost five years now, Iran effectively went onto the back burner. We were almost at war with Iran. It was almost a world war with Iran five years ago. It went onto the back burner when they were focused on Libya and, and then particularly on Syria but they haven't been able to make the breakthrough with Syria that they had hoped. The, the, the resistance has got stronger as I said really Iraq is effectively defecting from the US fold to to the, the Iranian Russian Syrian fold and um, that has implications broader implications for the region.
1: And of course we we mustn't forget that it's the Palestinians who are Suffering all of this time, not only in the occupied territories, but the Palestinians who lived in Iraq, the Palestinians who now still live in Syria.
5: That's right. They've been doubly displaced in Syria now. There is a very large population in Yarmouk, somewhere about 150,000, and the great majority of them have been pushed out into other areas of Damascus by the armed groups there. Basically, there's it's almost a ghost town. it Was almost a ghost town when I was there in in July. We went down to visit the outskirts there. There were less than 10,000 people there out of, from 150,000. So a lot of them get pushed into other surrounding areas like Jarrah other parts of Damascus. But the Palestinians have been suffering. Gaza is still being attacked. Their people are still living in the West Bank in those prison-type conditions. And the Syrians have been suffering even worse, even greater casualties through that time. But through that time, Syria has kept investing in the Palestinians for their education. They've treated them effectively as Syrian citizens in, in most respects. They're going to keep doing that. They've had that open borders thing. Remember, Syria took over a million refugees from Iraq too when that war was going on there too. So there are these ongoing relationships between Syria and the Lebanese and the Palestinians and Iran. They haven't been broken by this push against Syria or by the Israeli attacks. But, of course, it Palestine's important allies, the ones that actually give them material support, Syria and Iran, and Hezbollah, then they'll be lost effectively. They won't have a future if they don't have strong regional allies.
1: Do you have any hopes for the UN-sponsored peace talks?
5: The UN talks are important in the sense that they've reiterated some important principles. The Vienna talks, for example, the principles that the Syrian people are going to decide the future of Syria. There's not going to be some outsider deal done, even though the US doesn't really understand that principle because no empire does understand the principle of the self-determination of a people the right of a people to self-determination i should say but that principle has been reiterated the principle of not dismembering syria even though academics in this country and the us people who are associated with government are trying to curry favor with government keep talking about the balkanization of syria the balkanization of iraq there are indeed i mean a lot of the military strategy that's going on with the sale of oil and the role of the Kurds in Iraq is still more or less helping fuel this idea of partition or the, or the balkanization of Iraq and Syria. But the international talks that you've mentioned, hosted by the UN, have rejected that principle because the, the territorial integrity of a nation is one of those principles of international law. The UN talks are important for that reason, but really there has to be some type of political accommodation of the big players that are involved, and that's tricky, and there's going to be a change of administration in the U.S., and the U.S. has to really find some way to back down without losing face. this is usually the case, because they don't know how to lose, lose um, in any way, let alone gracefully, but effectively they are losing strategically. Their plan for the whole region is in tatters' effect, frankly, and how the current administration or the next administration, which could be Republican, I suppose, in the U.S. deals with that is going to be quite important.
1: And you think of the lives that have been lost and destroyed because of that policy?
5: Exactly. Well, you count them up from Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya, and uh, it's shocking, really. It's shocking the, the lives that have been lost and also all the people that are still alive, living with the burden of that, having lost their family members. You know, everyone in Syria has lost family members, and the propaganda campaign against them is trying to say that it's the outsiders that care about Syrians and the Syrian government doesn't care. The Syrian government said uh, in, to the UN recently, listen, we care most about our people. No one cares more than we do about our people. You know, stop this hypocrisy of, of trying to starve us out with, a, with sanctions and then pretend that the government is trying to starve its own citizens. It's just a, a war of propaganda that has been incredibly powerful and surprisingly very few voices have spoken out against this. I hope more do... In future as the tide turns that's typically what happens That people see that things are changing and they look for some new sort of explanation but um the propaganda war from the western media has just been appalling in the last five years
1: and that was dr tim anderson who's a lecturer senior lecturer in political economy at the university of sydney that's all for me for today i will won't be back next tuesday it's Invasion Day next Tuesday, special program for that day, but I will be back on the 2nd of February, so I'll say bye for now.